Okay, I'm going to talk about um, water and evolution of the human diet. I've never thought about water in the context of the evolution of the human diet before, uh, but I have written a book uh, with two other fantastic people called Evolving Human Nutrition. So um, I was trying to put things into a water context because um, this is what this month is all about. Water is mundane, water is all around us, water is important and we don't think about it, at least in this country. We take it for granted, uh, but really we shouldn't. We can't do food without water. As you look at this slide, it's something that you can see very clearly. Um, water means vegetation, vegetation means food, whether it's for animals or whether it's for humans. We sit pretty much at the top of the food chain and really uh, water governs pretty much all of the things that we do. Um, I'll work out how to be intelligent shortly in terms of the, the, the Okay, so this is going to be a quick skate through water. Hopefully it will be at least marginally interesting and at least, I hope, um, we'll come away with something. So, first of all, water flows across boundaries. And this is something that I've been thinking about in relation to, in relation to nutrition. Look, that's good. Nobody's come to mop it up. Okay, the one thing that we all want to do with water is discipline it. Now the thing is that it's something that actually refuses discipline a lot of the times. Um, we're surrounded by disciplined water. We are 65% disciplined water in ourselves, in our cells, in our bodies. Um, and it's that water we don't think about terribly much, the water that's within our, our boundaries. This is the gatekeeper, the way in, the mouth. I'm not going to talk about water loss. Um, um, I'm sure there's a bottle that deals with water loss in the Museum of Water down below. Um, but just to talk very briefly about um, the water that very simply governs us. And this is by way of a, of a baseline. How much water do we actually need? There are lots of studies that have looked about what's an average daily water intake uh, per person. It depends really on what you do in everyday life. Um, two and a half litres minimally, five litres maximally, unless you're an indigenous Aboriginal, uh, uh, indigenous Australian living in the desert, when you might be, you might be uh, needing 10 litres of water per day, just in terms of insensible, insensible water loss. So we need water to live, um, and we need water in food, and we need water um, to be able to just do, uh, just do the, uh, the everyday things. So, in thinking about metabolic water, we think about the representations of the things that we don't see. All the metabolic processes um, that involve movement of water from one place to another, it mediates biochemistry, it enables uh, biochemistry, and um, it has to come from somewhere. So, met metabolically, Water is um, carbon-rich food and water consumed in our everyday food and uh, uh, then it's metabolised, water is released, some of it's reused, some of it we excrete and so uh, without water uh, things simply don't work. Taste is another issue. Can I ask for two volunteers? Who likes chilli peppers? Okay, one more.
terrible, terrible experiment. Okay, but the point was that water, uh, water mediates taste. Uh, water mediates flavor, as does that. The one real anomaly in this is chocolate, because chocolate doesn't have much water yet. Uh, fat, uh, meat, taste is mediated because of the fat in the chocolate, and that coats the tongue. So, okay, second experiment. Over there, there's an apple, an apple slice, and a bottle of juice. So, three volunteers. Okay, yeah, two, three, 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 third. Okay, Michelle, over there. Grab um, one each, and Okay, the instruction, Michelle, take one mouthful, just take one bite, uh, chew into that apple and, and slip into the juice. Now, okay, okay, who's getting this with flavour? Everybody. Okay, didn't work either. <laughs> 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 worth a try. Okay, um, it should be um, that the apple is going to take time because you have to develop saliva to start, start producing. Um, uh, to start producing enough water on the tongue to be able to start mediating the flavour. This should give you an instant hit. This you have to break down the cells to start getting the hit from the water. So, uh, from the point of view of, uh, of, of, of evolution, if we think ourselves as being primarily uh, fruit eaters as our baseline adaptation, this is a fabulous water carrier. Um, it's something that water is maintained in the cells, you break down the cells in your mouth, and the flavour is immediately liberated. We've cheated evolution through things like, like, like fruit juice because we can get an immediate hit of, of, of flavour because, because the contents of that water are even, um, are even uh, 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 faster uh, at release. I found these things at Marks and Spencer's today, not apple crisps passing around. The other cheating map is what's the classic on Citric acid is supposed to reduce the drowning. The only thing it does is the acid releases, uh, releases saliva faster. So again, you get a flavor burst simply because of the vitamin C that's in there. So I guess the bottom line of that is the food companies know all of this. They know how to produce flavor. And not all the flavor is in the chemical. It's actually in the mediation of those flavors. Brain um, flavor systems are generated um, First of all, through the taste buds in the mouth, that sense all kinds of things that need uh, water to, to be able to be them. Across common in evolution, water is fundamental. It's to um, everything that we everything that we do. Our first significant common ancestor was Homo erectus about 1.8 million years ago. And this is a kind of classical uh, depiction of on the edge of the forest, uh, cracking away at something or other. And here's another one, uh, making tools uh, by, the side, by the side of the water. Um, fundamental issue in human evolution is climate change. Some very contemporary issue, but also an issue that we are very, uh, very much aware of in the present day. If we go back between 6 and 1.8 million years ago, things are pretty well pretty well straightforward. We had rainforest, montane forest um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and many of the hominids that lived there were reasonably adapted um, to their environment. What happened soon after that uh, was climate change and the breakdown of, of, uh, of, uh, of the environment in many, many different kinds of niches, into grasslands, savannas, uh, semi-desert, open woodland, uh, scrublands of different kinds, broadly tropical forest. Okay, the principle is 
that as things become more arid, as environments start to, start to become um, um, more water challenged, then those environments become more localised according to the local water supply. And the other thing that happens with the breakdown of these ecologies is um, the activities that humans perform also change in relation to water. Okay, this is a lion in water, not going for a swim because it's a hot day, but actually practicing a perfectly normal, rational behaviour for an animal, which is to um, uh, try and pursue animals that are flocking to the water. Um, they need water, animals need water, and the food supply then also flocks towards the water. Here's a standard account of early human migration, the out of Africa model, um, great t-shirt, we're all Africans, means good colour, um, um, which, which from the genetics suggests that, you know, 100,000 years ago, um, one wave out of Africa, 50,000 years, 30,000 years, around Australia and so on. So gradually, humans populated the rest of the planet. The piece that's left out of this, I feel, is um, where is the water? That's a standard genetic story, but put, um, put the ecology into this, put the water into this. How do you get out of Africa? You don't just randomly walk across the desert. You don't just randomly walk into arid areas. You don't randomly do anything. You follow the food, that's the first thing. So you follow the vegetation, you follow the water tracks, and this is, you know, historical uh, patterns of migration, and these are historical riverbeds, if you will. So you could walk a river to the source, walk a little bit further, find the source, somewhat reminiscent of walking the original, the early stretches of the Thames, looking for water. You know there's a riverbed there, you know eventually you'll find water. So like my inner homonym comes alive when walking those early stretches of the Thames, as I'm sure everybody else has, has done that particular thing. Okay, here's some archaeology. River gravels, drainage channels, uh, basins, um, uh, paleo-lake sites. So if we went back 100,000 years ago when the south of Africa was happening, it wasn't happening randomly. It was happening on coastlines, it was happening um, along, uh, along riverbeds and, uh, and, uh, and uh, along streams and so on. So water is fundamental to human evolution simply because uh, uh, water predicated um, uh, uh, the, the food supply. Following the water across Asia, Stephen Oppenheimer has done, which has technologies, boats, feeding, all of these things, uh, beach hopping, all of these happen in synchrony. Many, many different things coming together, an intelligent animal able to migrate um, because uh, the waterborne routes are the most, uh, are, are, are the easiest to follow to ensure a food supply. Again, an early narrative about human um, dietary evolution was that around Homo erectus, two million years or so ago, diet quality started to improve because as hominins we started to eat more amounts of meat. Another story that goes, goes with this is that there may have been more meat eating, but there may also have been a lot more shellfish eating at that time as well. That um, higher you know, diet quality is usually talked about archaeologically in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, protein and protein sources, uh, but there are arguments for uh, shellfish eating as being, and uh, fish eating being equally important. Okay, if we can take up foraging ideas and consider contemporary uh, hunter-gatherers, indigenous Australians, the Kung in the Kalahari Desert, 
I'd like to separate those because they are not relics of the past, of the evolutionary past, but they're the only kinds of models we have for trying to understand how the ecological past might have looked in relation to, to food getting that 100,000 years or so ago. Um, when, we, when we look at the Kalahari Desert, um, first of all, it's down here um, on the uh, borders of uh, Namibia and South Africa. Um, it's incredibly dry. Um, in uh, most times of year, focusing on even further, we start to see um, riverbeds, we start to see vegetation in these particular places. Now, if you were a Kung Bushman, would you be sitting out here looking at the landscape? It might be a wonderful view, but actually your food is going to be down here. Regardless of whether there's water in those riverbeds or not, there has been water at some stage, and there are things that grow there um, as a consequence of that. So putting some some flesh onto the ideas of, of moving along, along riverbeds. Focusing in even further, um, this is not uh, agricultural country. It cannot be, even to the present day. But you see that there are, there are a number of, number of trees growing there. And this fabulous thing called the Mongongo nut tree. You can't buy this in Marks and Spencers. Um, I'm sure there'll come a day when you can. Um, and then I can give you, show you what a Mongongo nut looks like. Um, but this is a primary source of, of uh, hunter-gatherer foraging in there, is the nut that comes from that particular tree. High in protein, can be gathered um, across, uh, uh, across, uh, across the seasons uh, to, to, to some extent. And uh, being able to find these things also uh, in relation to where you choose to pitch your, your camp, how far you choose to travel, sometimes five kilometers, sometimes six per day, then back to the camp. Where people place themselves in relation to their food is, 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 vital, is vitally important. So these are, these are women gathering, these are men going out, going out hunting. And, uh, and uh, um, the ways in which people make foraging decisions are in relation to their expectation of what they might find, something's a, a, a good resource, and in relation, to, um, uh, in relation to how far they might need to go to get, to get those particular resources. So, looking at um, the diet, which is conditioned by water, at certain times of year, mostly vegetable nuts. At the right time of year, Mongongo nuts make the majority of the diet, huge numbers of calories from them that are gathered. And so people stop in a base, move across the distance, come back, change base when that resource is depleted. Think about how we live our lives now. Actually, our food comes to us. And, you know, as you can see, all of our foods come to us. So we don't have to make those decisions in relation to, uh, in relation to our environment and our climate. All of this has been taken away from us scientifically, so we really are not so in tune with, with, uh, with, 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 with how, we, how we get our food. We try to re-engage with it to some extent in, in terms of trying to eat locally, trying to, trying to eat according to seasons, if we are in the position to do so, of course. And the other constraints, of course, are in relation to, to, to annual rainfall. Annual rainfall changes from year to year. For us, it's not really much of, a, much of an issue when the rainfall patterns change, unless it disrupts the transport and we can't catch the train and, and so on, which happened to me on Saturday. Um, but, but generally, you know, there are years which, uh, in which there's higher rainfall, and for the Kung, it means more food. Um, there are years of, of drought and severe drought, and these are years when there's less food. 
So water is fundamental to, um, to survivorship. And you could even say that the changes in climate um, that after um, uh, the emergence of Homo erectus around two million years ago would have been a major selective pressure, not directly because of hot and cold, wet and dry, but because of the vegetational changes that would have led to, uh, to, to, to periodic food shortages. And in particular, like this, that from year to year there might be, you know, one year that's one year that's got a lot of rainfall, another year that has poor rainfall. You can't get that kind of detail in the archaeological record, though. Just don't know. But year on year, there would have been responses to those kinds of stresses and changes. Okay, Alphonse Musha um, and the seasons. There's lots of good images of seasons. If you dare to look for them, you can find them in the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, I found a particularly good one around a font in Norfolk that showed a representation of all the seasons, medieval representation of the seasons. We can see um, that how influenced we are not just by, um, not just by average patterns of, of, of water and rainfall, but also seasonal ones. We think about winter and summer, uh, but if you were in the tropics, you'd be thinking about wet season, dry season. Can I ask anybody, put your hands up if you've lived in the tropics. Okay, at least two people, two people, three people, I include myself. Um, and there, in many places, you know, you would have, you know, in India, northern India, you would have monsoon season, rains a lot, a dry season later on in the year, and so on. Um, to talk you through a, a hominin and a hunter-gatherer diet for flexibility and seasonality, how you use the landscape changes across seasons, starting on the outside, outside. Exploitation of grass leaf and stem growth of plants, okay? You can eat leaves. Then you go into the dry season, you can eat seeds. Okay. If we think about a zucchini, um, well, what's, what, how, what do you call a zucchini? Courgette. Courgette, okay. Um, courgette, okay. You can, you usually eat the fruit, it can be small. You let it grow and it turns into a marrow, which people, some people like growing and nobody likes eating. Um, you can, you could eat the seeds of that if you wanted to, of course. Well, early on, you could eat the flowers, you could eat the leaves. So one plant can actually do many different foods. So in thinking about seasonality, we are used to thinking about plants being one thing. But actually, as things grow, um, a plant can be leaves, it can be seeds, it can be roots. As you go in, in, <coughs> inland in this, in, this, in this picture, concentration of fruits later on in the season. Fruit season's only just coming in in the UK. It's about started now, um, June time. Gooseberries are now here, and the, the, the season will pretty well end in December when the apples finally drop off the trees. Um, but the season for fruit is actually very long. The best time of year, 150 years ago in this country, in rural England, was actually October, November. It was the bountiful time. It was when people had food. Ordinary common people had food because there was just so much fruit and vegetables, uh, you know, coming, coming uh, appearing at that time. We've completely lost that idea of that season now, unless you're somebody who forages or somebody who has millions and millions of apples and doesn't know what to do with them. But, but uh, you know, we're, we're detached from that that aspect of seasonality. If we move further in, you can scavenge eggs and fledglings. Okay. When birds lay eggs, we're not used to raiding egg, uh, bird nests these days. Some birds are protected, so um, uh, most people that do this probably do this covertly. 
Um, uh, other times of year, birds grow. When fish ponds dry out, when pools dry out, when fish become tra trapped in ponds, oxbow lakes and things like that, then they become times when you can gather things. When you have water depleting during the dry season, then animals will come near permanent water and therefore then you have a concentration of those animals near permanent water. So you can see that just the water patterns change the food that is, that is, that is available. A little example, <coughs> an illustration of how this happens. Um, I went here with my wife in 1988, before my daughter was born. Um, it was, this is beautiful, this is during the wet season, this is northern Victoria on the border of uh, New South Wales and Australia. Stunningly beautiful. We just happened to go when it was a bit more like that. And, uh, and uh, the external temperature during daytime temperature was 45 degrees Celsius. So we did what any, self, uh, any knowledgeable kangaroo would do, which was sleep through most of the day, because it was just too hot to be able to do anything. Uh, but you see, these lakes all connect at a certain time of year. As the season goes on, these lakes start to become detached. And so the ecology is actually changing, the microecology is changing across the season, across the year. What was, separate, what, was, what was a continuous lake becomes separate islands. Growth starts to happen. These are Aboriginal maps, campsites, and this is, these are water holes, drying up water holes, um, that reflect the kind of symbolic knowledge that goes with uh, being able to uh, understand, understand your particular landscape. Um, so, as the season goes on, that's Hatter Lakes right in, you know, uh, in February, March time, where the water's completely receded. What do you get? Cockatoos up here. Fish in that pond are dying. So you get birds flying in to try and capture some of these fish. If I were a hunter-gatherer, it's great. You just scoop in and start, and start the harvest because everything is coming to this resource. As a hunter-gatherer, you don't need to wander to find your food. Your food comes to you. That's the best possible possible kind of foraging you can do. Um, the great intelligence to, to foraging, hunting and gathering. I've only tried hunting and gathering once, and I was so bad they let me stay home the next day. They actually went off, and I asked, where have the men gone? And they said, well, no, they didn't want to wake you. Um, in fact, because I'm too big, too clumsy, too noisy, and I'd scare everything away. So my one, one trial as a hunter-gatherer was a, was, 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 was a failure. Seasonality in terms of food availability. This is the kum again. Seasonal mongongo nuts, uh, seasonal fruits, seasonal, uh, seasonal nuts and berries. So the seasons show different kinds of foods across the year. There's no average kind of diet. And this is one of the things about studying the evolution of human diet. You think, what should you eat to be able to be healthy, to eat the right thing? Actually, there is no average diet. You should be practicing diversity, and maybe diversity across the year. Things should be, should be constantly, uh, constantly moving, constantly changing. I suppose, at the very least, you should be responsive to your local environment in some way and aware of it. Okay, I'm moving towards uh, what I think is going to be the end, um, which is beyond foraging, where did it all go wrong? Water and agriculture. The current food system is the logic of evolutionary ecology, boundaries and climate change, so beyond foraging. Um, okay, this picture of Shabona Singh. I think she's got something going here, doesn't she, at King's? Um, anyway, I want to see this performance, Just Add Water. 
Uh, when you think about agriculture, just thinking about just add water is a good thing, because actually many of the foods that we eat are foods in which we just add water. Um, okay, here's pasta, just add water. Um, pasta can live forever uh, because it's dry, so nothing's going to harm it, and then you just add water and it's reconstituted. Uh, many of the cereals that we use are already um, very low in water. Um, and so we move to a cereal-based diet, which is very efficient to deliver, because all you have to do is add water. That's the marvellous thing. It would take the water for granted. It's almost a, you know, a, a common good that nobody questions, and yet we're coming to an age where we might have to question uh, the value. We do question the value of water, and this entire project that Amy Sharks has got underway is about, about the magnificence of beauty and wonder of water as something one should not take for granted. Should not take for granted. Water is everywhere. Add water, adding water for washing, adding water for cleaning up. The moment that you've got agriculture, then you start to move into a different age of materiality. Bowls. Cups. How do you determine agricultural sites in the past? It's usually because of the cooking pots. You know, you move to these additional technologies. Once you start getting this materiality, then you start to sedentize people. And then you start to think about possessions, about keeping what you have. Changes everything about how you live. It's something that happened more or less 10,000 years ago, and we're still living in that particular mindset. And you need water for storage, because once you settle somewhere, you're not going to move from, uh, from, from stream to stream. These are particularly beautiful water vessels uh, on Woodlark Island uh, in the Pacific. I regret, Amy, I didn't get one of those to bring back, uh, but it would be good. This place is a freshwater desert. Okay, It looks beautiful, but actually it's a tiny island with very little water on it. So being able to collect water, even on something that's surrounded by so much seawater, absolutely essential, absolutely precious. These are, these are uh, floats, uh, 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 sea, um, um, what would you call them? Fishermen's floats that have been sort of drilled into and turned into, and turned into water bottles. Okay, so we know how much water we need. Um, agriculture intensified food production, but it also intensified um, water use. Okay, drinking water. I've already said earlier, the baseline between two and five litres a day, unless you're an indigenous Australian or a Kung Bushman, you might need more. But then you add to this, sanitation, um, just keeping things clean, bathing, cooking in the kitchen. You could easily add, <coughs> multiply <coughs> the amount of water that a human needs tenfold just because of the behaviours and practices of agriculture that make people sedentized, that intensify <coughs> exposure to pathogens, that increase the need to be clean, to be able to, 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 be able to wash and to be able to stay healthy. So all of this, all of this moves. The other thing is when you add the cost of growing uh, between, um, these, are, these are different estimates in California, 6,000 litres per person per day for production of food. 64% of this for the production of meat. I'm not going to talk about meat being terrible. I honestly don't care whether meat's terrible or not. I love meat. No problem about loving meat. Um, but I just know it's an incredibly privileged position I have to be able to consume just about any meat I want. 
I'm in a hugely privileged position. Um, and, you know, even if you go to Tunisia, you know, it's between 6,000 and 1,200 times more than the physiological need of water. It's huge, it's staggering, and yet we take it totally for granted. Totally for granted. It's uh, astonishing. Now, this is why I was asking for both a cup of tea and a cup of coffee. I came in, and I came and I said, I want six glasses, and I want a cup of tea and a cup of coffee. Um, Amy's got a cup of tea. Do you know how much your cup of tea costs in a water economy? You've got tea and coffee? Yeah. How can I have both? Yeah. I've tried not to drink all the Anybody who is from Australia and lived in either New South Wales, Victoria or South Australia, especially South Australia, will know about the problems about water. You have, you have state governments that control their own water and they can't come to an agreement, three states, over the control of one river. And so South Australia ends up having very little water relative to the other ones because they can't coordinate their agricultural policies within one so-called developed country. It is scandalous. Okay, water, cellular water, it's embedded in all vegetation. Okay, I've already said, we find it in that wonderful apple that's over there somewhere, that's probably been eaten. Yeah, it was good? Good apple? Thanks for the lunch, sir. No problem. Um, <laughs> I fruit as well. <laughs> 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 You know, if I'm boring, at least you get a feed. Um, 
Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, the is invented. This is a wonderful thing. It's a cellar structure of an onion skin. It's one of the things I did when I was 11 years old. I got a microscope and said, the easiest way to look at cellar structure, peel off that inner skin, put it under a microscope. It's such a great experiment. So easy. They're so flat. And you can see these wonderful cellular structures. Now, of course, what is water in this? Water is helping mediate all kinds of things inside the cell, but it's also giving the structure to this thing. Um, plants cannot survive without water. Plants and their fruits um, are, you know, are fundamentally water-based. That apple was 84% water, more or less. An iceberg lettuce is about 96% water. Uh, sweet capsicum, about 90% water. All of these things carry huge amounts of water. The water itself makes it what it is, but also it makes these things expensive. Adam Dronofsky in Seattle has talked about, about the cost of food, that, that vegetables are an expensive thing because they carry so much water. Um, and these, these vegetables, in trying to define, defy the seasons, are being moved by trains, by trucks, by aircraft, but most especially on water, across the oceans, across huge distances. If you want to have mange tout, snow peas, in January, yes, you can have them. Of course you can. You pay for them. Um, but they'll come in perhaps from somewhere like Kenya where they've been flown in. And so everything um, is, is, is adding to the cost. Another aspect is how these foods are distributed. You've got latter-day hunter-gatherers. The same logic for the Kalahari Bushmen applies to the distribution networks of, of Tesco's across the United Kingdom and Walmart and all the other supermarkets. They put their delivery centres in the places where they can get their trucks to the store most efficiently in a just-in-time system. Obviously, high technology, computers involved, um, they can see what's being scanned out of the supermarket, they can see what needs to be put back onto the shelves, but they can operate in a, in a, in a way that is really operating like, like indigenous Australians and, and in optimising where these things are. So if we don't decide where we sit in relation to our food, the supermarket distributors do it for us. They have done all of this for us, so we can take our food system for granted. So that's another, another, another step of separation. Then the separation from seasonality. This is from, from the last book. This is a Sainsbury's, actually, a supermarket in the UK, for a number of things that uh, Gorbat nomads in Afghanistan consume seasonally. So in the UK, you can get all of these things, almonds, cherries, tomatoes, potatoes, across the entire year, if you want to. Um, these things are extraordinarily seasonal in the places from which they come. So we're kind of very, very separated from our, um, from, our, from our seasonality. We're separated from our rainfall, we're separated from our seasonality. Except, good old Rony Horn. Um, this is the Thames um, by Rony Horn, a river of great meaning to many things, to many people. And it takes us back to boundaries, and it takes us back to the puddle that I've just made on the floor. Um, this is a bigger puddle, uh, which was around in January time in, uh, in, in Gloucestershire. There was a similar puddle just uh, on the way to work, um, because uh, outside of Oxford, where they were flooding the fields because they were keeping the water from going into Oxford. Water 
had become hugely unbounded. Climate change has happened in the past, climate change is happening again, creates new challenges, and we struggle to keep water bounded. Hugely, hugely problematic. Water cycling is influences agriculture. This is Chicago, you know, a picture taken when there was a, one of the biggest rainstorms Chicago had ever had at the beginning, at the beginning of, uh, of, of this year. Precipitation intensity is increasing in most places. It's happening here. You know what that means. The rain doesn't gently drizzle, it still does, but oftentimes it just goes bang. I'm going to dump. I'm going to dump more water. Can I do that? That's all So, more water, more water. Um, intense. More intense rainfall and also increasing changing patterns of runoff. Runoff. But here in East Africa, it may rain more intensively, but it's just running off and not being preserved in the ground. So, so this itself, the pattern of rainfall, is important because this is also impacting on uh, on, on on food production. And finally, liquid incidents. These are Ronnie Horn's nine liquid incidents. And again, this was from the Sydney Biennale. It was a great three hours because I could think about this talk I was going through that, so it didn't influence what I was doing. These are, these are glass blocks. Okay, she's done lots and lots of these glass blocks. And this one had nine of them. And you can just lose yourself in these glass blocks. You have to work out where the boundaries and look at them. It's like looking at water because you're in this ambiguous state. You look deeply into it and you can see yourself reflected. Um, and uh, liquid incident were probably a feature of the past. They're certainly on the increase in the present. So these liquid incidents, increased rainfall, flooding, all of these things that we're seeing here. What's the likelihood that these changing rainfall patterns are going to change agriculture? California's wheat, tomato, rice, cotton and maize production all expected to lose between 10 and 30% of their yields going to the year, going to the year 2050. A lot of modelling is happening to the year 2050. Uh, soy crop production in Brazil has slumped by more than 20%. Um, in West Africa, rainfall increases might actually increase food production in West Africa. So food, water, climate, and the pattern of this water all vitally, vitally important. So water shapes what we are, shapes who we were, shapes what we eat, shapes how we eat in the evolutionary past, in the more recent past, now and into the future. Thank you.